The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's time for your best legal defense with your host, Lonnie McDowell. This could be the most important hour of your entire week. Our program discusses the criminal defense and legal system and what it can mean to you. Lonnie and his guest experts will discuss cases that are groundbreaking and important to today's law and court system, from arrest to bail. We know you have questions about the law, and we're here to answer those too. Now, here's trial attorney and host, Lonnie McDowell. Good morning and welcome to Your Best Legal Defense. I'm Lonnie McDowell, your host today. Uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, what we defense attorneys tend to call the CSI effect. Um, that is where juries expect all kinds of uh, new and innovative uh, CSI um, evidence uh, and in some cases uh, it doesn't exist. So today uh, I want to discuss uh, one aspect of uh, CSI which is uh, DNA analysis and my guest today is Susanna Ryan. Uh, she's had 15 years of experience in the field of forensic serology and DNA analysis and uh, I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about herself. Uh, good morning Susanna. Hi, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I'm glad you uh, could do the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, you know your work in DNA analysis. Sure. Okay. Um, well, I have a Bachelor of Science degree, um, biology with a minor in chemistry, and then I went on to get my Master of Science in forensic science from Virginia Commonwealth University, and that was in December of '98. So pretty much immediately afterwards, in January of '99, I started working for a private DNA lab in Virginia, and I worked for them for about three and a half years and got some on-the-job training on how to do DNA casework and um, uh, also worked on some other projects, uh, missing uh, identification of missing persons and identification of the remains of the World Trade Center while at that private laboratory. Um, and then I went to work for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement in Tampa, Florida. And I did basically the same thing there, except I also was trained on forensic serology at that time as well. And um, forensic serology is identification of body fluids. So while in Florida, I was not just doing DNA testing, I was also uh, screening evidence, looking for um, biological fluids that could be tested for DNA. And I worked for them for another about three and a half years. And then I mm -hmm. moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I worked for the Charlotte, <laughs> I know, I've been all, around, all over the place, um, worked for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department in their crime lab uh, for about a year, a little less than a year. And then I moved to San Diego, so to the area where I currently am. And I was a technical leader of a private lab out here in San Diego. And um, so I did DNA analysis, casework, testified as an expert. But I was also responsible for um, 
the technical operations of the lab, troubleshooting, validating new procedures, things like that. Um, and then that lab shut down in 2008, so I started consulting, which is what I'm doing currently. Okay. So I, are you currently doing any analysis or field work or just consulting? Um, yeah, just consulting for the most part. Every once in a while, I'm called upon to go and collect some evidence. Um, uh, that would be, you know, mostly just just collecting the evidence or maybe doing some forensic serology, but I don't do DNA testing at this time. Okay. Uh, is most of your work with uh, criminal uh, in the criminal field or are there other fields that you uh, were working in? Yeah, no, most of it is uh, criminal work. There are a few civil cases here and there, but usually those are related to some sort of criminal case. Um, but yeah, that's the vast majority of my work. I do give some presentations here and there for law enforcement as well, um, but mostly criminal defense work. Okay. And in the, uh, the spirit of full dis disclosure, uh, I have uh, worked with you on a case or two uh, that I've had, um, so people know. Uh, now, are there different types of analysis with, with DNA? And what I'm getting at is, is it different doing DNA for a criminal case uh, versus, let's say, paternity or some other type of DNA work? Um. <laughs> Not, not really. Um, paternity cases, they do almost exactly the same testing that we do, uh, mm -hmm. that, that criminal cases do, except, you know, with, with criminal cases, typically what you're doing is you're finding, you're, you're looking at an item of evidence, seeing if you can get a profile, and then comparing that directly to a suspect or to a victim. With paternity cases, you're doing the same type of testing or using the same um, same, same methodology, but mm -hmm. paternity, it's, you know, you're not looking for a direct match. Instead, you're looking to see if, if a mother or a father, you know, the alleged mother or father could be the real mother or father, but you use the same type of techniques and equipment, um, as criminal testing. Okay. Now, <clears throat> I think one thing that I've noticed with, with juries is because of, you know, the TV show CSI and, and you know, other shows like it, um, every case I go into, everyone wants, you know, DNA and, you know, they've, they've watched CSI and they see them put things in a box and, you know, steam it with a colored fluid and, and all of these tests do, do normal um, Forensics labs have that type of equipment, and when I say normal, I'm talking about uh, such as a crime lab, you know, with the, the police department. Um, well, I might have a little bit of a difficult time answering this because <laughs> I have a hard time watching CSI because okay. <laughs> I've only watched it a few times, and each time I've watched it, I've been so aghast at what they're doing that I, I had to turn it off. So the one time I watched many, many years ago, there was a person in the laboratory, and then another person walks in eating an apple at the same time. You never have food in the laboratory. And then the individual who was working cut right through an evidence seal on the item of evidence. And, of course, you never want to do that either. So <laughs> that was it for like many years. And then I think I caught a part of an episode. And it's what I saw with the DNA was they, the equipment that they're using, yes, we have, but they, the results 
that are portrayed are not accurate. So, for example, um, one instance they showed it was a CODIS hit. So CODIS is the combined DNA index system. Right. Certainly CODIS exists. It's the DNA database. But we don't put in the numbers and then, you know, a flurry of pictures flash by until, bing, it hits on someone <laughs> and has their picture and their address and their weight and height. And, you know, no, that's not how it works. It is the profiles get entered. They're searched once a week. Uh, if there is a hit, you don't even know about it right away because they have to pull the sample and confirm it at the state lab. Then you'd be notified via an email or a letter, but you never know what the person looks like. You get their name and perhaps if they're in, they're currently incarcerated or not, but that's about it. Um, and then it doesn't happen as quickly as what it's portrayed on CSI either. That's the other main thing that I've seen where uh, <clears throat> someone, again, another scene, it was a person that was... Um, wanting the DNA results. So this investigator was really, you know, interested, what it, does this match, whatever. And they, they were kind of pressuring the DNA analyst. To, they really needed results. And the DNA analyst said, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll let you know as soon as I have them. And the investigator said, oh, it's okay. I'll just stay here and wait. Um, <laughs> you know, well, that's not the way it works either. So, uh, so I think it's like they have the equipment that can be used, but they definitely change things around with how the results come out um, and it doesn't just, you know, spit out results like, like you see on TV. Right. And it's funny because uh, when I was in law school, uh, law and order was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I remember sitting in, you know, taking evidence and, you know, watching law and order and going, no, you can't do that. And yep. it actually, I, I used it kind of as a game after a while to pick out as many flaws in the way they are presenting the law yes. uh, as I could. And, and I actually used it as kind of a, a learning tool, but I, always, I, I know what you're saying about the, you know, the DNA analyst, analyst uh, standing there saying, well, I'll just wait for the results. It's, I always found, found it interesting that they can arrest the person and get them to trial while <laughs> everyone's wearing the same clothing the next sure. day. Sure, right. Uh, right. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's a case, you know, a, a simple misdemeanor can take a month or two uh, or longer. You know, a complicated, you know, murder case like on, you know, Law and Order takes maybe a year, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, Olivia is still wearing the same, same clothing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, but that's one of the things that, that I found um, is so many people outside the field that we pick the jury pool from uh, watch these shows and really um, think that this is actually how it's done, that, sure. you know, you, you have all of this equipment and you will get a positive match and, you know, it's definitely that person. And, you know, a lot of times it's, well, it could be that person or they're not excluded, which right. I see, which I, which I see a lot, um, is it's not an, the person is not excluded, but they, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's them. Correct. Um, that's true, especially in the case of mixtures of DNA. So if you have, if you have, let's say you have a blood stain at the crime scene and you get mm -hmm. a DNA profile and it matches someone, that is going to be a lot more difficult to argue that it's, it might not be them. But if you have a mixture of DNA, which we are seeing more and more of because of the types of evidence being submitted, um, those are much more difficult to interpret and it's possible then that you, you're going to see those can't be excluded. 
But that doesn't mean they're the only person that wouldn't be excluded from that profile. So that's where you have to be more careful. Right. And and mixtures is is something I want to get into um, with you. Uh, We're going to take a short uh, commercial break here, and uh, we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys. McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. We know the system, and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do. We know their weaknesses, and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell & Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit mcdowelldefense.com. That's 213-401-2322 or mcdowelldefense.com. Se habla espanol. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213-401-2322. This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, we're ready to take your call at one 866 472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radio show at mcdowelldefense.com. Now, back to the show. Yes, welcome back to the show. This is Lonnie McDowell, and I'm speaking with uh, DNA analyst Susanna Ryan. And before the uh, the break, we were talking about uh, the CSI effect, and we were just getting into uh, how mixtures of DNA play into this. So, Susanna, with uh, DNA, the I guess the analysis is more coming about with touch DNA. Is that correct? Yes, that's that's definitely true. Um, we've definitely seen a trend over the past several years where many more items of evidence that were never even submitted to the lab in the past are now routinely submitted for touch DNA. So that's going to be DNA that has transferred to an item of evidence merely through someone touching that item. 
they picked up uh, a knife, they picked up a gun, um, or even something more benign, a, a, a pen used in a bank robbery. You know, I mean, something right. that anything that somebody touched is now being submitted to the lab on a routine basis. Right. Now, with, with uh, DNA, um, while it can tell if someone touched it, it can't tell when they touched it. Is that correct? Um, there have not been a lot of studies yet on how long touch DNA can last. Um, there's actually only one real study on it where the researchers were trying to determine how long DNA might last outside. So let's say there was a burglary. Someone tries to break into a home. They mm -hmm. touch the window screen. They touch it, maybe a, um, a screwdriver and then leave it behind. How long might we expect that DNA to remain? So what they have found is that outside, if something is out of doors, only about two weeks, maybe a little bit less, is how long you'd expect that touch DNA to remain. But inside, in a more controlled environment where the DNA is not exposed to heat, humidity, rain, you know, moisture, things like that, right. uh, they found DNA up to six weeks. That's the longest they tested. And we know anecdotally that... DNA can last even longer than that, touch DNA indoors. Um, I would say one example might be the John Bonet Ramsey case, where um, I, honestly, I, I can't even remember the exact year that was. It's, you know, in the 90s. 90s, like, yeah. Um, where just recently, I think it was in maybe 2009, they did some testing, touch DNA testing on her underwear and were able to get a male profile. So, that kind of shows you that, you know, touch DNA can last for a much longer time. What we know right now is definitely up to six weeks inside. So, yes, if you have an item of evidence where you get a DNA profile, that's great. You, you might be able to match that up to someone, but you have no idea when it was placed on that item. And the other thing you don't know, really, is how the DNA got on the item because what we know now is that DNA can transfer directly, like if you directly touch something, but it can also transfer indirectly through secondary transfer. And that would be where, let's say, you and I, you know, we see each other, we shake hands. Uh, some of my DNA might transfer to your hands. If you then pick up something, you can transfer my DNA onto that something. And oh, if it's okay. something that happens to be used in a crime... That could be a big problem because now my DNA might be on that item without me ever touching it. Right. And it would get into a, what would be called a, a mixture. So uh, the item would have or could possibly have your DNA and my DNA just from the transfer, correct? Sure. Yes. Okay. And like, let's say uh, like right now I'm having some work done in my house. So I probably have like about 10 contractors or, and workmen coming in and out. Mm -hmm. um, all touching the same surfaces. If there were a crime here and you were collecting DNA, would that necessarily have like a mixture of all of their DNA? Well, it's, it's possible. I wouldn't say it would necessarily because sometimes you can touch something and not leave DNA behind. It's, it's very, there's a lot of variability in touch DNA. Um, but that possibility does exist. And so there are some samples that labs generally won't accept. So let's say um, a convenience store is robbed okay. and the, uh, the police 
officers, they, they have video, they know which, which door the robber went in. They might want to swab the door handle to the convenience store. That's going to be a, generally a pretty bad piece of evidence because you're going to have a mixture from so many people who have touched that door handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would see, yes, multiple, multiple individuals where you might not be able to exclude just about anybody with, with that sort of sample. Okay. Um, well, I had a case uh, a, a while ago um, that uh, it was basically um, 11 alleged different victims uh, over a period of months um, with multiple alleged defendants. Uh, with alleged multiple uh, uh, items used used as a weapon. Now, that type of mixture can that can that be separated to really show the possibility of, of you know who was there at the time when there's kind of that much of a mixture, not a potential always. mixture. Right. No, not always. So, um, what can happen is a couple things can happen. If you have a mixture, sometimes you'll have what, what we call a major contributor. So someone who just by whatever, for whatever reason, more of their DNA happens to be present than some of the other contributors. If that happens, it's much more easy to pick out a major contributor from a mixture than a minor contributor. Uh, most of the time, minor contributors, especially if you have three or more people in the mixture, it can be much more difficult to pick out individuals. Um, So that's one thing that could happen is you might have a major contributor. Um, Another thing that can happen is as long... So if if you have multiple contributors and there's a good amount of DNA, then you can do something called a combined probability of inclusion. And basically anybody who might happen to be... have the same DNA that could possibly be a contributor to that mixture, you, you calculate that statistic. So the CPI is saying, here's a chance of going out and finding someone at random who's unrelated that might also be a contributor. And so typically CPI results, you're going to have a, a greater probability of finding someone else that has that mixture so in, or that profile. So instead of having a result of you know one in a quadrillion <laughs> that the DNA is someone else's, you might have a result of one in a couple of thousand. So that's telling you that it might be fairly easy to find someone else that could also be included in the mixture. Um, But mixture calculations and mixture interpretations have changed in the recent past. Um, Since 2010, they've changed. Actually, I feel for the better. They're a lot more conservative. Instead of just including anyone you possibly can in the mixture, there's a lot more interpretation going on and um, some results, if they can't be used, they're just, they're just calling the result as inconclusive instead of trying to fit someone into the mixture. Okay. Now, you just mentioned the, the uh, one in quadrillion. And I always find this um, hard to explain to juries. Uh, how, how can you know it's one in quadrillion when there aren't a quadrillion people there? How, how do they actually come up with that type of number? Well, what it's based on are the population databases, and there's a number of different databases. Most laboratories will use the FBI's database, and that is based upon, there. it's interesting because there's only a couple of hundred individuals 
in each of the population groups in these databases. But what happens is what, what the databases do are determine the frequency of occurrence of a particular, um, we call it an allele. So an allele is an alternate form of a gene. And basically, when we were talking about DNA profiles, it's sort of, it's just a number. So it's the number of repeating units you happen to inherit. So um, anyway, each of those alleles have a known frequency of occurrence in the population. And mm -hmm. since they're not linked, we can multiply those frequencies of occurrence together to come up with that big number you get in the end. So it's kind of like flipping a coin. If you flip a coin once, you know, you have a 50-50 chance. So you, there's only two choices on a coin. You either get a heads or a tails. So it's, you know, okay. one over two. But if you want to say, well, what's the chance of getting a heads um, three times in a row, then now it's one over two times one over two times one over two, or, you know, you have a one in, what is that, eight, one in eight chance. <laughs> Um, and so then if you wanted to know what's the chance of flipping it, uh, you know, getting ahead 10 times in a row, then you see how the number goes up. You would multiply 2 times 2 times 2 until it becomes much more unlikely that you're going to be able to flip a coin and get ahead 10 times in a row. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what's happening with um, population databases. Those frequencies of occurrence, we, we look at 16 different locations. And at each of those locations, there are two possibilities. You get one allele from mom, one from dad. And so you multiply all those frequencies of occurrence together to get the final calculation. Okay. And you said you're, you're looking at 16 different locations. There, there's many more locations, though, correct? It's just those are the ones you're looking at. Right. So the ones we're looking at are the ones that, um, those are the kind of the, the standardized locations that we know that they are not linked to each other. They're not associated with any um, genetic predisposition to anything or diseases. They're just, they call it like junk DNA. It's, it's, they're called short tandem repeats. They're filler DNA. They, they are the DNA that are in between the genes on your DNA. And yeah, there are many, many that, that could be looked at. Currently, labs are looking at 16. Uh, it's going to be going up in the near future. Um, uh, up the newer kits that are coming out are looking at anywhere from 23 to 27 loci or locations. So it's, it's going to be changing in the near future. And that should make it more accurate? Yeah, it'll make it less likely to have an adventitious match or a coincidental match to someone else. Um, and it will also allow our database to be compared with the international databases because currently we actually use a lot of different loci. Here in the United States, we use different loci than they do in Europe, for example. So we can't compare them. It's like comparing apples to oranges. You know, you can't do it because they're looking at different locations. So these newer kits are going to include the European loci. They're also going to include a couple of YSTR loci. Those are found only on the male chromosome. Mm -hmm. And it will be helpful to determine that will be helpful with mixtures and determining if there are if there is a male present or how many males are present and the newer kits also are going to have more mini str loci those are very small loci that uh, work best when you have a very old sample that might be very degraded so um, that will also be a benefit to the newer kits 
Okay. Uh, well, we're going to take another uh, short break here, but when we come back, I want to talk about, uh, you just mentioned uh, degrading of samples and things, and I want to talk about how, uh, you know, uh, doing cold cases and DNA preservation uh, and get into that when we come back. So, uh, on the other side, we'll talk about that. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys. McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. We know the system, and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do, we know their weaknesses, and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell & Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit mcdowelldefense.com. That's 213-401-2322 or mcdowelldefense.com. Se habla espanol. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213-401-2322. This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, We're ready to take your call at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radioshow at mcdowelldefense.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back uh, today. Um, my guest is Susanna Ryan, DNA analyst and expert. Uh, and before the break, we were uh, discussing uh, DNA and, and mixtures and, and uh, how that uh, can lead to uh, results. Uh, but uh, as we come back, I've gotten a couple of uh, email questions from listeners. So I want to start off, Susan, with asking you uh, one of the questions uh, here. So, uh, person writes in that he was accused of statutory rape. Uh, He says that the girl did everything. She gave oral sex. They had intercourse. He used a condom and he didn't come. She took a shower afterwards and he wants to know, will his DNA show up? Um, (laughs) it's 
possible, yes. Um, it depends on how long it was between the incidents and when the samples were collected. So I would not expect there to be DNA. You know, if a condom was used, then no, I don't expect there's going to be semen, but you have to remember there can also be saliva transfer. Um, there can even be transfer of, of skin cells. Um, so if the, if the, so what would happen is the alleged victim, is she's going to go in and get a, um, uh, forensic examination and the nurses will ask her, well, what, what happened? And if she says, well, he, you know, touched me here or he licked me here or whatever, they're going to collect from those areas to see if they can collect saliva as well. So with, with sexual intercourse cases, I mean, there, it's just, just by its nature, it's so intimate, right? You're so close to the person, you're, there's so much DNA that can transfer in so many different ways. So those typically we do tend to see a transfer of DNA in, in some way or another. It just depends on if, if the lab tests the right samples, basically. You know, some labs will say, well, there's no semen, I'm not going to test anything else. And other labs will say, okay, here's the scenario. I'm going to look at this sample and this, you know, look at everything in the kit. It's, it depends on the laboratory. Yeah, and DNA just doesn't come from bodily fluids. It could come from skin cells that were transferred, from uh, hair, uh, yes. and then again, saliva. Um, but it also can uh, come from breath. Is that correct? Um, well, I mean, that would be more just saliva from talking so when you breath itself I don't I mean I'm not sure about that but I mean potentially yes you could but I would think of it more of uh, speaking so even as DNA analysts in the lab you know we're now trained you've got to wear a face mask because just talking when you're around the evidence you can leave your DNA so there you know there's a study that uh, they wanted to know, well, can investigators or CSI people, when they go to a crime scene, can they contaminate the crime scene just by talking? And they found that, yes, uh, within 30 seconds. So if someone is just sitting somewhere, standing somewhere, and they're just talking for, for a few minutes, within 30 seconds, they have contaminated their immediate environment with their, with their DNA, with little pieces of, you know, spittle, basically, that um, is... is able to be collected within 30 seconds and and find it on on their immediate environment like i think it was like two to four feet in front of them mm -hmm. now <clears throat> bring this to, an, to another point over the years um as it's gotten more sensitive uh more precautions have been taken to avoid this correct yes that, yes absolutely Okay. Even as I remember, like from the OJ case, and you, you know, you saw Dennis Fong out there collecting evidence and things, um, you know, not wearing a mask, uh, mm -hmm. uh, things, and those could have potentially contaminated those samples that he took. Correct. That's true. Yes. Yeah. And is that a big problem now for analysts doing cold cases where they've collected the the DNA? Uh, either from you know, underwear or from mm -hmm. some other item years ago, trying to go back now, you know, especially since California and other states, any felon, when you're convicted, you have to give a DNA sample and they start running it through their databases and they try to match it to cold cases. Is that a problem? It can be, certainly. Um, 
So one of the things I always caution when I talk with I think we've uh, just lost Suzanne again. I think we're having a little technical difficulty. Um, I know uh, in my cases, uh, and I've worked with Suzanne in a couple, where we've looked at DNA um, and have found that there has been contamination uh, either by someone who can be uh, identified, either someone in the lab or you know an officer or something, or is inconclusive where there's DNA that shows up uh, in the profile that we haven't uh, had anyone who has been able to be sampled. And that's actually very good for a defense attorney because now you have the possibility that your defend your you know your client may have been there, but uh, there may have been someone else there. And you don't know, as we've talked about before, uh, when the uh, other person was there. So that can uh, be a great uh, defense tool. Um, juries tend to, as we were talking before, look at CSI and they see they definitely came up with uh, the person. You know, uh, I've seen that on the show. They had all these great uh, gadgets and, and scientific uh, instruments. And they said, oh, this is definitely the person. And you just don't really have that uh, in the courtroom these days. Uh, or very rarely do you have that in the courtroom. Most of it is kind of the person is not excluded from the possibility, but isn't a direct match. And a lot of times you don't even have the one in quadrillion. It's just he can't be excluded or the, the DNA was inconclusive. And what a lot of people don't uh, realize is that can be a very powerful uh, defense tool because juries tend to want, from my experience, they want definite answers. They definitely want to um, go and, uh, you know, have the person tell them that this is, this is who it is. So what we're trying to get some uh, technical difficulties straightened out, we're going to go to our next break, and uh, we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you been arrested? Is someone you love in a legal jam? Don't get advice from just anyone. Call the criminal defense experts at McDowell & Associates. Attorneys. McDowell & Associates has over 20 years of legal experience. The National Trial Lawyers Association named us one of the top 100 California criminal defense trial attorneys for two years in a row. We know that sometimes good people just make bad mistakes. 
We know the system, and we know how to fight for you. We know what the prosecutors will do. We know their weaknesses, and we'll do everything at our disposal to get you the best possible outcome. Your case will receive the personalized attention it deserves. McDowell and Associates, attorneys, has the experience and the skill to make sure you or the ones you love receive the best legal defense and strategy. Call 213-401-2322 or visit mcdowelldefense.com. That's 213-401-2322 or mcdowelldefense.com. Se habla espanol. When your future is on the line, your future is our business. Call us at 213-401-2322. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This is your best legal defense with Lonnie McDowell. If you have a question for the host or guest, we're ready to take your call at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Be sure to tell the screener if you need to remain anonymous with your question. You may also send an email to radio show at mcdowelldefense.com. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back. <clears throat> I think we have Susanna Ryan back on the line. Uh, you know, yes. the joys of a live radio broadcast. Right, uh, Susanna, right. you there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am. Sorry okay. about that. Oh, no problem. Okay, so uh, just before we lost you, we were talking about cold cases and the uh, possible difficulties of getting, uh, uh, you know, an analysis uh, due to contamination of, uh, because of procedures that, you know, were used in the past. Right, yes. So I was saying, I believe, that, you know, when I talk to cold case investigators, I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword because DNA has advanced so much that, you know, a sample that they, maybe they even previously sent it to a lab for testing, maybe not even that long ago, and they didn't get results, they could definitely resend it and maybe get get results today with, with the techniques that are being used today because of the sensitivity. But on the flip side of that, you need to be very careful because we don't know how that item, that piece of evidence was handled. And there are so many more precautions in place today because of the sensitivity of the testing that, um, you know, if anyone handled the evidence without gloves or let's say they wore gloves, so that's good, they're wearing gloves, but maybe they didn't change them very often. Maybe they went and picked up this item of evidence and handled it, held it, and then picked up the other evidence of items, uh, evidence, item of evidence, and they could have transferred DNA from the first item to the next. To and the next. we just didn't know that it, the sensitivity was going to be such so great today. Um, so that's one of the things you really need to be careful about when you're talking about cold cases or post-conviction cases. I always say, listen, if that case has gone to trial and that item of evidence was allowed back in the jury room, for example, and jury members handled it, I mean, you know, you don't know who you're going to get on the, on the sample. It's basically worthless at that point. So you do need to be careful, know how the item was handled, and have a good database. Um, you know, laboratories, they're required, anyone who works for the lab has to have their DNA in a database, an elimination database. 
but we don't always have elimination databases for police officers that collect evidence um, or first responders, things like that. Right. So you might get a profile and you don't really know if that's the, truly the perpetrator or someone else who just happened to come into contact with the evidence. Right, and that's one thing that I've done in, in certain cases in the past is actually ask for DNA profiles from the first responders uh, when yes. there's been, a, you mm-hmm. know, a, a especially when there's bodily fluid, um, it's easily contaminated. But now you were saying about uh, you didn't know how people handled it in the past. They wore gloves and things. Now, chain of custody is. Uh, legal concept of, you know, you know who has handled it each step of the way. So you know where that sample was, who handled it, who opened the evidence bag, who sealed it, the next person who had it, where it was stored. But that wouldn't tell you about the procedures that were used in handling it. Would the bench notes from the analyst tell you that or that type of thing isn't recorded? No, not, not typically. Now, you could look at a lab standard operating procedures and it would have those would, you know, there would be some indication of what their requirements were. So for example, are they required to separate samples? Uh, so they're only looking at one evidence item at a time. Are they required to not look at items from the scene at the same time as items collected from a suspect? Some mm-hmm. labs, to this day, don't have that requirement, that separation requirement. You know, as a person who reviews cases, I've seen that. I've seen labs looking at, they would look at, let's say, an item of evidence taken directly from a victim or a suspect, and then the next item of evidence they look at is from the scene. And the concern is that you can artificially place someone's DNA on an item of evidence if you, you know, through cross-contamination. Right, which was, of course, um, the... You know, defense's argument in the OJ trial is that it, you know, his, besides being planted, uh, mm-hmm. that there was also cross contamination because of the lab and the way it was was mm-hmm. the evidence right. was handled. Um, right, is that- and and it, it can occur, and 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 we see that so- sometimes it's caught, and there will be something called a corrective action report. So let's say you have two cases that are being processed at the same time, so they're not related cases, but you know, lab. They're not going to just do one case at a time. They batch samples together, and they might have multiple cases that are being processed at the same time. So if you have one sample that is from one case, and then next to it is a completely unrelated case, and yet Mm -hmm. you get, let's say, the suspect's profile is showing up in this unrelated case, then that's a big tip-off. Ooh, something happened. I contaminated these samples. So that gets caught. But what if it's a sample that is from the same case, and the suspect's DNA is showing up, but the question can be, if, if you're looking at items from the scene and items from, let's say, a victim or something like that at the same time, what if cross-contamination occurred in those instances where you're looking at samples from the same case, you're not necessarily going to catch it. You're going to say, oh, the suspect's DNA is on this item. Whereas, you know, see what I'm saying? If it's two separate cases, right. it's easily caught. If it's not, that, that can occur. Um, and can basically artificially create mixtures. So that's also something I look at to see if, you know, there are high-level samples next to low-level samples where those are more easily contaminated uh, than others. 
Right. And, and again, that's, that's one of the things as a defense attorney we, we look at and we, we try to argue, especially if we have some, some basis for it, that there was contamination, that you know the items were handled incorrectly. So right. the way that can happen is, unlike CSI, where they're in a little sterile room um, with one sample at a time and then decontaminate everything. The lab is actually just a very open lab where they're processing many things at the same time, correct? Sometimes, yes. I mean, I, I would say that laboratory analysts are going to be as careful as they can be. They obviously don't want to contaminate either, but it's right. not just one, typically it's not just one sample that's being taken the whole way through the analysis process. It's going to be many samples associated with a case or multiple cases that are being mm -hmm. processed one after another. You never want to have two items of evidence out at the same time, but it'd be one and then the analyst cleans up and changes their gloves, but, for example, keeps on the same lab coat, uses maybe the same ruler, touches the same camera to take photos. So there, are, there can be instances where you, you see cross-contamination even when analysts are taking the proper precautions. And does one analyst handle uh, the evidence when they're doing DNA testing from beginning to end, or does it pass through a couple of analysts in, in the process? Yeah, it depends upon the laboratory, but what I'm seeing more and more often is that labs are taking kind of a team approach where one person might uh, sample the evidence items and then they hand it off to another analyst who does the extractions for that particular you know, week or or whatever time period, and then and then they'll hand it off to someone else who figures out how much DNA is present, and you know it keeps going from person to person down the line. And then what happens is they have a reporting analyst, so one person who will write up the report, but they that reporting analyst is the one who will testify, and yet they haven't actually seen or performed all of the steps in the process. They just have to kind of assume that all the steps were properly done and that each analyst followed the protocol, uh, the laboratory's protocol to a T, but they don't really know for sure. They weren't, you know, overseeing or supervising. So sometimes, you know, I, I see that and, and I point that out as well, that maybe you should have every single analyst who was involved come and testify about what they personally did in that case. Right. And, and I have uh, subpoenaed uh, analysts before. and. Mm -hmm. You've testified in, in criminal cases, both for the prosecution and the defense, um, yes. as I understand it. So, how is how, what has been your experience of, of, of you know being an expert and testifying in these type of cases? Um, I, it's, I look at it sort of as a chance to to educate. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm basically there to educate the jury. Um, I have found that juries tend to be pretty interested in. DNA-related issues. I mean, they, they are interested in probably because of CSI, you know, people know a little bit about it, and it is something that's interesting to them. Um, and I have found that juries do tend to have, you know, some juries especially have an open mind about things, and they, they want to know. Well, if this, many times when I testify lately especially, it's not necessarily saying that, everything was totally messed up in this case and this DNA is wrong. Typically it's, you know, the DNA profile, I'm in agreement with the profile. The question is, how did the evidence, how did that profile get on the evidence? Right. Is it because of how the prosecution alleges? 
Well, that might be a possibility, but let me tell you about some alternatives. Let me tell you about transfer of DNA. Let me tell you how DNA can transfer, and we don't know how long it can remain on an item. So basically, I'm talking about other alternatives that may be just as likely of a scenario. Right. And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, it can be, uh, you know, uh, a familiar uh, you can tell that it came from, you know, like father and son. Their, their DNA is very similar or exact, correct? Well, it would not be. Okay, so it would be very similar. Fathers and sons would share 50% of their DNA. But mm-hmm. what would be exact is if it was a Y-FGR profile. So that would be DNA that's found only on the Y chromosome, which, of course, only males have. So with y, Y-FGR, yeah, the the profile is passed down as a whole from father to son. So mm-hmm. in that instance, the, they would have exactly the same YFTR profile. And not only that, but any paternally related male would have the same profile, exactly the same. And that could go on for generations. So, you know, as a male, if you have any brothers, they're going to have the same profile. Any paternally related male cousins, they would have the same profile. Um, and you can also just actually unrelated individuals might happen to have the same YFTR profile just through coincidence. So um, that's definitely a different type of analysis that, again, juries, you know, that's kind of something I need to do sometimes is educate the juries on what exactly YFTR profiles are and why is it different than autosomal or the, the regular DNA profiles that they're used to hearing about. Right. Well, this is uh, you know such a vast field. We could we could go on for hours, but unfortunately, our our time is just about running out. Um, okay. Hopefully, I can get you back on, and we can go into uh, some other areas because you know I find you know DNA to be fascinating. Uh, but I want to mm-hmm. thank you for uh, coming on this week and uh, sure. education, giving us a little bit of an education into this. Um, sure. Next week on our show. Uh, we're going to be discussing Fourth Amendment issues and your rights there. And we have attorney Casey McBroom uh, on. She's a Fourth Amendment specialist. She'll be discussing, uh, you know, what you can, uh, when the police can arrest you, when they can't, what they can search, what they can't, and what your rights are and, you know, what you have to uh, agree to uh, when the police stop you. So, uh Until next week, uh, this is your best legal defense with uh, Lonnie McDowell. And hopefully uh, you were able to uh, learn something uh, about DNA uh, from our guest, Susanna Ryan. And uh, we want you to be safe out there. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to your best legal defense. Lonnie McDowell invites you to join him along with another guest expert, next Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay safe.